All right, welcome to the Action Martial Arts Power Hour. This is a show where we talk about anything and everything, and who knows what, martial arts related, not martial arts related. This is Alan Goldberg's brainchild, and I'm going to bring him on because he's going to explain it a lot better than I can. Alan, hey, the floor is yours. Guys, how you, how you doing, guys? Great to have you, and great we have my, a very, very special guest, Jeff Smith, on, and uh, we're excited. Jeff has so many great stories, and... He's one of the guys that are on the forefront of martial art world. I, I funny thing, I just spoke to a buddy of mine today, which Jeff, you had to know, Louis Neglia, and uh, he's rearranging a lot of things in his life now. And I look, I have to say, we're not none of us are youngsters anymore. You know, we we, we got to go to the next level. You know, so uh, matter of fact, we're having we're having lunch next week, and uh, good guy, I know him probably know him forty five years. Oh, I'm glad he's starting to slow down a little bit. Not much, but he's slowing down a little bit. Um, but, you know, a lot of things have been going on. Uh, the controversy uh, with uh, Frank Dukes and uh, Don Wilson is still out there. Um, there's a gentleman. Yeah, yeah. All right, Jeff, you're coming in. Now we're all together okay. now. Uh, there was a gentleman, his name's Dewey, and he did, has his own YouTube channel. And his average channel, you know, videos are 3,000, 4,000 videos. And, you know, he has a really nice show. It's good. It's good numbers. Mm -hmm. But he did the thing on, stupidly, he did the thing on Don, Don Wilson. And as of today, it was 130,000 people watched the video. <laughs> so I think Frank shot himself in the foot. Now, we just put out, and I spoke to... Uh, Today, I'm waiting again to hear back from Sky Benson, mm -hmm. uh, the student, and, uh, you know, we offered him to come on the show. We haven't been nasty about it, except Frank gets nasty and stupid, things like that, because he's defending himself, or he at least thinks he's defending himself, you but know, most people know what's going on with him. Yeah, it's, so, it's, it's good press, and, and, and he's probably from the school of thought that any press is good press. You know, they're talking about you. At least they're talking about you. You know, there's a lot of movie stars that are like that. They don't yeah. care. But he's so not you, a movie star, right? Oh, I he know. Didn't I just really... there's a lot of yeah, movie yeah. stars that do that. Yeah, so, he, you know, Frank has tried to play that role. And yeah. and uh, so he's playing it to the hilt. But, you know, he's fucking with the wrong guy with Don Wilson. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. But he, he got somebody that's been around too long and has done too much and has... Sure too big a fan base and exactly. uh, when you talk things uh, about him you got to realize that uh, everything you said can be backed up by somebody else who saw right. it it's legitimate, legitimate. Said, nobody can back up it's legitimate 25 2500 comments on the video alone really and none of them were, none of them were frank none of them were frank. all in Don Wilson's favor. but he kind of shifted but, over to the karate kid now right yeah, now he shifted. But look, could you run that video of Frank Duke fighting again? Yeah, I've been looking for it. I don't know. I went in the backyard. I looked in the hall. I couldn't find anything. Still couldn't find it. Huh? I found some blurry thing, but it was cast with a ghost. So I don't know. I, I actually, I actually watched one of the Benny Hill uh, things last night. Yeah, I think that was better. <laughs> Ready? Well, but you know, you know we put out. Thing, go the on. Good thing we we we've all been around long enough. You know, to see martial arts really evolve, you know, back in the early 60s to to present day, it's come through a lot of changes. And yeah. and I just really am grateful that I was able to uh, start when I did. Yeah. 
because it was right at the beginning. Uh, and I did miss that little uh, very first part with, uh, you know, the original part with Chuck and, uh, and uh, Joe, you know, because I was a white belt and not understanding what was going on as much as I did and, and saw them fight and watched it. But, you know, when you, when you go forward and look back, you go, you don't realize how great of time that was and, yeah. and how unique of position we were in to be that you, part you, of history. You turned out to be the name that people know also, the great Jeff Smith. So you, you've <laughs> done your homework and you came up and did what you had to do. And you know what I want to do, Alan? What I want to do, I want to play some of that footage because it is legitimate. So hang out with me. I'm going to play some of that. Again, back to that, you know, we have the Frank Dukes and we offered him a percentage of the pay-per-view. And so far, I haven't heard back from him yet. Um, he, he attacked me and Dana Stamos and Sheldon Lennox last uh, two days ago. Really? And I just, yeah, yeah. Well, who he put a can attack Dana Stamos? She's so, I, she's a I kind know. heart. Well, he said that we, we're going to attack but here's what he said, that, that me yeah. and, and Dana are very well liked, but we're not really sincere people because we don't believe your shit. That's the problem. So, uh, you know, but I put on, on the Black Dragon site, I put a whole bunch of videos up, which is proof in itself because mm -hmm. they were recorded by other people, a court case, two actually lawyers and a judge that uh, did videos on Frank just saying he was a little punch drunk. And these these come from TV. These are not you know bullshit things made up. So uh, there's some. If you get a chance, look at my thing. But we're leaving it open. We're not going to kill Frank. We don't want to. We want him on the show to ask him questions. And we did say one thing that Don and I went back on him with. That he said he put tapes on, and he had them on YouTube, and his detractors had it taken off. So uh -huh. I said to him, I offered to him go to Rumble.com. And put your videos on there because they don't take your videos off Rumble. 
Right. Even <laughs> because they were public, you're saying they were put out publicly. So yeah. No big deal. Or send them to us and we'll put them out. If you have fights, if you send me an email a day, then we just want to see them. Frank, if you're listening, which I know you are, you're probably sitting waiting for this to come out. Um, just, you know, we really want to know the truth. Are you who or what you want? And then you had a little controversy about Sheldon was telling us about the picture. And Jeff may know a little about this. He has a picture with him with a 357 Magnum, uh, 22 rifle, which uh, looks like an AR-15. It's not. And a Radio Shack <laughs> a walkie-talkie. <laughs> and that was supposed to be a military picture. Military grade, Bobby. military grade. Okay. Is this, and is Sheldon this when he was in junior high school? It, no, Sheldon told me it was from his movie, and Frank put it in his book saying it was it was him in the jungle. Number one, they didn't allow you. They didn't allow you in the jungle. Budgets were lower then. Budgets were small. Yeah, but they didn't. They didn't allow you in on a conflict with a with a nickel-plated uh, weapon because it would bring attention. You'd be killed. Okay, and they weren't giving you a twenty-two rifle <laughs> in the jungle. Yeah, and Radio Shack was not the state-of-the-art radios that were being used during the Vietnam War. <laughs> so anyway, you know, we, we've seen that one. But uh, let's go on. I, you know, again, I'm very excited. And, and you know, you know, before we go into that, I want to do one more thing, Alan, because yeah. I know with the Frank Dukes and all this stuff. I mean, you know, there's some. Whatever, I guess the video is out there. I, I've seen some stuff, and it's just, I don't know. I mean, if, if you're real at what you do, you can show what you can do. What I want to do, I want to show people what you can do, Alan. bring on our special guest i'm very excited jeff has jeff has lou and i were talking about this jeff has a, a repertoire of his career and you can just talk on and on about things you have done in in your life and i'm going to ask you some questions that we've gone over before and uh hopefully we both remember <laughs> we're going with this because, you know, we don't know what the hell we're doing on the show but uh Je jeff you know, your career has really gone off. And give us a little insight about the amazing team that was built with Joe Lewis and you guys, Bill Wallace, yourself, and how that happened. Now, I know that was after Chuck Norris, right, if I'm not mistaken? Okay. And are we going, are we going back before the first world championships when we were going to Europe and competing against all the European teams? That's you, buddy. We, we want to know about you, so you can talk about anything you want. Okay, I got it. So, you know, uh, luckily I was able to come up the time that I did, you know, with Bill Wallace and uh, Joe Lewis and, and Chuck uh, was just a retire, you know, Chuck really retired in 69 from most tournaments, but then he did a couple special ones after that, but mainly from the, you know, the circuit, he pretty much, uh, you know, retired in 69, but I got to watch him, you know, fight Skipper and Fred Wren and, and all the guys, Ed Daniels and uh, Jim Harrison and and all the, the, the great fighters back then. But, uh, you know, in the in 1970, uh, Mike Anderson, you know, he was one of June Rees black belts and he was in uh, Germany in the military. And uh, he teamed up with uh, George Bruckner, who had a, a school in uh, 
in Berlin. And uh, they decided they wanted to do, uh, they wanted to bring American karate over and let them see what we're really doing with the tournaments because those guys that over in Europe back then didn't have a clue on what we were doing. We were kind of, you know, leaps and bounds ahead of them. And uh, so the first time we went over there, you know, he brought on that team was me, uh, Joe Lewis, Bill Wallace, uh, Jim Buton, and Howard Jackson. And Al Dacascos, Malaya Dacascos, uh, Bruce Lee's uh, wife, Linda Lee, uh, you know, and this was uh, right after his passing. And, uh, and we did a tour uh, all over Europe, but we started in Berlin and we had the U.S. versus uh, uh, the U.S. versus Europe. And they put together teams from other countries, but it was one team from Europe. Right. And, uh, and we pretty much, uh, hardly had a point even scored on us the whole time they, we were winning the matches. They were quite uh, a, a spread there, you know, but uh, after competing there, we went to, uh, they, we got on, Mike took us on a bus and uh, we went to Amsterdam and then we were going to compete against the Dutch team. And, uh, and we fought the Dutch team and then we went to Rotterdam and some of these other outlying uh, suburbs or cities and fought a different team every day. And uh, the the best one, and probably the, the one that we still talk about, and Jim Harrison talked about it forever because, uh, you know, he was with us and Heidi Ochai was with us. And uh, so we were in Amsterdam and we were fighting against the, the national Dutch team. Well, that's what they told us, right? And then we get up there and the, we look across the, the mat when we're bowing in and there's a green belt, a blue belt, a red belt. They were all lower belts. There was only one black belt. So there was only one guy from the team. So we ask, uh, you know, what's going on? Where's the rest of the guys? Well, the coach of the team was on the national team, but he wasn't fighting, right? He said, oh, our national team would destroy you. You guys, uh, you know, cannot hold hold the candle to our guys. So you, you can fight our students. That'll be hard enough for you. Well, we beat these guys. I fought the only black belt and I beat him 22 to nothing. Jim Harrison was the center referee. So uh, uh, Jan Maker, who was a judo, uh, a judo Olympian, he was a gold medalist in judo. And he was the promoter of the event. And the Kosha Shinkai team, that was the national team, but it wasn't from his school. So I went over to him. He's on the microphone. We're in an auditorium. And so they're sitting out in a, in, like you're at a theater, right? We're up on the stage. It's where all the fight. There's just our ring, right? One, one uh, ring for the fighting. So after we all fought and beat them, I don't know what the total score was like, uh, almost a hundred to one, maybe they scored one point only. Right. And so I go over and I ask uh, Jan Maker, I said, uh, Hey, Jan, can I fight the coach of the Dutch team? He's on that national team. Can I fight him? And so he had, he's right at the microphone at the podium, you know, just kind of like how your podium is setting. He's got that same one, like it's your event. And he, then on the microphone, he said, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Jeff Smith of the U.S. team has challenged uh, uh, whatever his name was. Uh, 
to a full contact match. <laughs> well, we were fighting with equipment, right? And uh, these guys didn't even have equipment. But we put the equipment on because we knew if we hit them without the equipment, we're going to knock them out, get disqualified or whatever, because it was a point tournament, right? But it's Kosha Shinkai, so it's pretty hard contact. Well, now he says full contact. Well, we go out there, and I and Jim Harrison's the center referee now, right? And so I think it's we're going to fight in reality, kind of like we did already, which was hard contact, but not trying to kill the guy, each other, right? So I go out there. He comes in. I front kick him, knock him back, but he grabs my foot, sweeps my other leg, and then stomps by my head, and I moved out of the way, right? So I get up, and I said, okay, we're playing Texas rules. So then I blitz him. I sidekick him, and I knock him over where the officials were sitting. They had one straight long table, kind of like one of your tables you have at your event that uh, – all your, your people are setting at. And uh, he does a backflip over it. They get him back over. He's, they get him, give him five minutes to resuscitate himself, comes back in. He comes in again. This time I kick him, knocks him back. He comes again and I punch him and knock him down. Now he, we're doing this kind of fighting. It's not the normal point break and all that. Jim Harrison is you know, you don't do the one point and stop. They let you go boom, 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 right? So I knock him down, and then I go over and stomp him right on his head. His head's coming up. I stomp him. It goes down, and, I mean, he is out. Blood all over the stage, out of his nose, right? Jim Harrison is over him counting. <laughs> it's supposed to. Supposed to be a point match. Well, he doesn't even come to. His students come up there. They get him. And we're thinking, okay, you know, where's the doctor? You know, who's going to take care of this guy? I was afraid he was going to die, right? They come over. One student picks up his legs. And now they're going to take him to the back locker rooms, right? And he starts walking. Well, the guy behind him didn't even pick up his arms, so now he's dragging him, and there's a trail of blood going, and he goes down the steps on the back of the stage, and it's donk, donk, donk. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the guy was so pissed off. When, when Jan Maker first called him up there, he came over, and he was in street clothes, right? He said, oh, I don't have my uniform. And so... One of his students runs over, Sensei, Sensei, you can have my uniform. Take my uniform. <laughs> now he was, he was in the spot, so he didn't even want to fight anyway. But now this gets even better. Now the head of the Kosha Shinkai group comes over. Jan Maker's on the microphone announcing the next thing, and they're doing demos and everything, you know, like a regular show. And uh, all of a sudden, the guy comes right across the stage. And you know how they put the podium over to the side so you can see everything right. on the stage. Mm -hmm. He comes up the far stairs, comes right across the stage where everybody can see him. And as he walks towards Maker, Maker looks at him. And just as he looks, the guy is lunging and throwing a right really? hand, hits him right on the jaw. And I went, oh, my God, he's going to knock him out, right? Now, Maker, young Maker, you know, judo guys aren't the little skinny guys. Mm -hmm. right. This guy is built like a truck, right? He's got a neck, about a 22-inch neck. So 
<laughs> he hits him and his face goes just like this. It was, I was, I couldn't believe it. He hit him, his head goes like that. And then he comes back and his whips back. He grabs him, picks him up and body slams him. <laughs> now, every student from his school and every student from the kosher Shinkai thought that was an invitation. It looked like one of those, uh, soccer games in Europe when they uh -huh. when the stands all start fighting people were coming out of the stands the stage there were people everywhere were like punching the wanderers jeff like the wanderers it was joe and bill and i were standing there like this <laughs> just by the side the people were coming by us you know we weren't doing anything right cops come they clear everybody out they give us a police escort out mm. so joe and i said okay the, the cops said that some of the guys on that other group were tied in with the mafia over there and there might be guns outside. They might be waiting for you guys. So I said, well, we don't like the surprise. I said, Joe, come with me. So we went up by where the exit was and we just stood there kind of waving bye to everybody. Everybody, as they went by, they were like, oh, we love you guys. Great fight. And so everybody, yeah. and so I went back and I told the guys that said, they're not upset with us. They're upset with John Laker. So yeah, yeah. We, we got in the car and went to the hotel. Uh, a question. Mike Anderson, is he still alive and okay? Or do you know? Down in okay. Florida. All right. Cause we were good friends and then he disappeared. We what a great guy. And I tell you, our martial arts owe so much history to oh. him. Oh, you know, yeah, the 100%. things that he was doing, you know, he put the whole Waco thing together with Bruckner. He took us all over Europe. You know, yeah. we went to Paris. We went to Amsterdam. We went to Austria, Switzerland, Spain, UK, yeah, Ireland. He, he was amazing. in all those countries. And, yeah. uh, you know, we would put the team together. And then I had, you know, we even did it. I was coach of that Waco team bringing us teams over there from 80 to 90 those 10 years we won 10 consecutive world championships and we were doing point fighting and full contact and the first team i took over because we couldn't take all the point guys and all the full contact guys we only mm -hmm. took seven guys and they all did point and then when they would finish that match they would run over to the other ring do a full contact match finish that come back and do a point match they were, and that was Troy Dorsey and oh, uh, yeah. Steve yeah. Anderson and Ray McCallum mm -hmm. and uh, John Longstreet. And, uh, you know, those guys back then, uh, you know, really good fighters, Tommy Williams. So they were winning. They won gold medals in both the point and the full contact. So they had to fight double matches and going on at the same time, whereas the other countries had a full point team. They had a full yeah. full contact team. And we still won the team title, uh, even though we had half as many people on the team as the other ones did. So the next time, Mike let us bring a full team. So, and we even brought women the next time. So I brought Linda Denley and yeah, Helen yeah. Chung and a bunch of the other females that were that were good at the time. And then, of course, they all won gold medals. And uh, so great times. And every every year, it was in a different country. So we got to yeah. go to. England, we get to go to Ireland, we go to Venice. Uh, it was it was quite quite uh, the experience. And now, most of these guys that I would take now, uh, 
you know, we arranged to pay all of their expenses, paid them $500 a piece because that was back when nobody was getting any money for anything. Nothing, right. right. And I talked to Mike and I said, Mike, we, these guys got to have some spending money. So, and then I went and bought jackets for them. So we had us team jackets. I bought bags. I got sensory oh, to oh. donate the uniforms. So we look like a real team. If you see some of those pictures with those satin jackets with USA across it, the yeah. white ones with the red, white, yeah. and blue, I bought all that stuff. I had cap, you know, baseball caps for them. So we look like a real team because these teams over there, they were serious. You know, they, they had Adidas and all these other companies. The government the government they, funded a lot of them. Everything. Yeah, they funded everything for them. So they looked first class. So I didn't want to go over there with a bunch of, uh, you know, bag bonds and look like a yeah. bunch of, uh, like, like you know. Bears <laughs> and just all exactly. fish yeah. Yeah, Everybody with a different color shirt or different <laughs> uniform. But, Jeff, when you get a chance, if you can send me Mike's phone number, I, I, I have it somewhere, but I'd love to go. I will. I'll do that. It's been quite a few years since I spoke to him. Anyway, now I have to ask you, we'll go a little further. Okay. The day, the, probably one of the greatest days of, of your life in, that I look at was a thrill in Manila when they asked you to fight in front of like 10 million people, whatever it was. <laughs> and that had to be, I mean, th th there's nothing more that I would say. That yeah, that it's, it's one of the milestones to, for me, definitely. Yeah. You know, I have these little milestones that I kind of mark things. And, and that was one, you know, my first milestone was not just starting karate, but when Junri wanted me to come up to Washington, D.C. Right. and teach for him. And now Junri came and gave me, I was in Texas, and that's where he started originally. So he gave me every one of my belt tests from white belt all the way to black belt. Mm -hmm. And he would fly to Texas each semester. I was doing it at the university, uh, even when I was in junior high school, even though you could only, you had to be in college to be in the program. But my mother worked at the university so they let some of the faculty staff, you know, be in the program. Well, mm -hmm. college guys didn't want us there. I was 14. They mm -hmm. beat the hell out of us. These were big, you know, adults. We're just little kids, you know, 14 at the time. And so that's what toughened me up. You know, you either get tough or die, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, coming to Washington, D.C. after that in 1970 was a big milestone. Of course, winning, uh, you know, in the point fighting uh being rated number one by Black Belt Magazine over Bill Wallace and Howard Jackson for two years. And for those two years, 73 and 74, the three of us were back and forth for part of the yeah. year. You know, Bill would be number one, I'd two, Howard three, and then vice versa. I would beat Bill, he would beat me and Howard. The three of us were winning pretty much all the tournaments, or most of them. And enough to be the top three for those those couple years. So we happened to be right at the right place at the right time because when Mike Anderson decided to put that first full contact together, now with the only reason we were able to do full contact like that back then and, and do the what's called kickboxing now is because Junri came up with all this safety gear. Safety gear and the right. reason he came up with the safety gear is because of Mike Stone. Mike Stone is the one that actually put that gear together first. Really? really? But he didn't, you know, he was trying to get it done. He had some prototypes, couldn't get the funding, decided he wasn't going to do anything with it. Junri, so, you know, so nice. Before he'll even go do it, he calls Mike Stone and asks him, is it okay if he does something? 
Now, he didn't copy anything that Mike did, but he asked him, which he didn't have to, but you know how, how right. these real martial artists, are, it's all respect. It's all about respect. And Mike said, oh, sure, please do. I, you know, I, I'm not going to do it. I'd love to have something like that done. So then Jin Ri eventually started his own safety equipment company. And of course, I was running all his schools. I was the senior vice president. I was the chief instructor. And then when he started the safety equipment, he now he put me in charge of the safety equipment too. <laughs> and I set up distributors for him in every country, South America, Canada, you know, then in the UK, Paris, and I had a I had international distributors. Yeah. So, you know, we went from doing about 50,000 a month to doing almost a million dollars a month back then. Mm. He got a big SBA loan and built a huge factory. We were making equipment for Century we were making equipment for ProTech. We were yeah. making wow. equipment for Kim in Baltimore. Wow. And then after Junry made that for a couple of years for him, they decided now, even though Junry had all the patents, he had patents on everything. Well, Century decided they were going to make their own. ProTech decided they were going to have, you know, find their own place to make it because, you know, you cut out the middleman, right? You got, there's one less person that yeah. is going to take a cut. And now June Reed could have went and sued them all because there was no way those that other equipment was so close to his same same material same design, but June Reed being the the martial artist he is he said as long as it's helping martial artists and if they'll wear his instead of ours that's fine as long as they're wearing it. I mean it it was amazing and and you know back then Mike Anderson's the one that made the tournaments start using it. Yeah. The first tournament that I wore it at that that actually used it was the internationals, Ed Parker's tournament. Yeah. June Reed says, you're going to Ed Parker's tournament and you're gonna take all of this equipment. I had a dozen of these huge boxes. I had over a hundred pairs of equipment, hands and a hundred pairs of feet that I had to slept on a plane all the way. You would think he would just ship the damn stuff. No, 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 no. You take it. We want to make sure it gets there. The personal time. The personal time. hauling this stuff. We get to the tournament. Well, now they had seen it. You know, Mike Anderson had it at top 10 nationals. Top 10, right. You know, and uh, Alan Steen had it at the U.S. championships already. But California hadn't had it yet, right? Yeah. So they bring it all out. And now Ed said, you know, Ed Parker's one told him to, if you'll bring it, I'll let everybody wear it. Well, I get there. Well, now people started complaining. They didn't want to wear it. Really? So I said, to, I said, you know, Master Parker, you're the uh, promoter. It's your rules. You said it was mandatory just because they don't like it. They have a choice of competing or not. He said, I know, but, you know, these are my you know, my uh, my black belts and from, you know, our area here. And I said, okay, well, let's be, let's be democratic about it. Let's vote. And, and whoever says the majority will rule. And he said, okay, you know, what could be more fair than that, right? So I'm right there by where he has the microphone. And then he says, okay, we're going to vote on whether you want it or not. Now, everybody was over here. He says, if you want to, if you want to wear the equipment, come to this ring. If you don't want to wear it, go to this ring. So I'm on the mic. The microphone's right beside me. I say, okay, did everybody hear that? 
all the fighters over here, that's where the equipment was. Uh, all the pussies <laughs> over here. <laughs> so there were there wasn't 12 people that went over there without the equipment, right? But now Ed Parker says, because he sees that it was a bunch of, of people he knew that he had yeah. a little more in contact with that were probably influencing him. So he says, okay, well, it's optional. If you want to wear it, you can. So, of course, I wore it, and I ended up winning grand champion that night, and I beat uh, John Natividad in the semifinals and Darnell Garcia in the final in the final match. And uh, and we all had equipment, and Natividad wore equipment. I mean, so all the finalists were wearing the equipment. And, uh, you know, the year before, that was when uh, Darnell won that. The year before that, fighting Joe Lewis, he beat Joe Lewis. The year before that, Natividad won Grand Champion, and he beat Lewis. So they were, you know, they were the two California favorites. But when I won it, it was the first time, only the second time, but the first time in ten years that anybody won fighting Grand Champion outside of California. It mm -hmm. was always, and even after that, it would nobody, Bill, nobody, Skipper, nobody, oh. Freshman, nobody ever outside of california ever won grand champion there but me and alan steen and that's why i wanted to do it because alan steen was junry's first black belt and then i was kind of the the you know the second generation of that right so i was you know really excited to be able to win it back then but that was another milestone and then the next one was the the first world championships uh and the reason that was able to come about is because of uh of uh, Joe Lewis and Mike Anderson, mm -hmm. either one without the other, it wouldn't have worked. Really, because Joe had all of the Hollywood connections. Mm. He got Nathaniel. He got uh, a Tannenbaum, one of the big movie producers. Yeah, yeah, I know. He got all the stars invited to come there and do announcing and help and be in the audience and and get it on t national TV. It was on the wide world of entertainment back then on ABC. And uh, so now they've got this big show, but the way they decided to do it, because it took a lot of organi organizing and had it not been for the WACO, we could have never gotten a European team. Canada, we had a team. Mexico, we got David Moon, who put together a team, Japan, they had their connections from the Japanese, you know, like Tadashi uh, 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 and uh, and a bunch of the other uh, uh, Mafuni and a bunch of the the other guys that were that were uh, Japanese stylists. And then the Korean, they had the Korean team. So we had all these countries represented, and it made it a lot more legit rather than just having another, you know, it's like the when we have the Super Bowl and they call mm -hmm. them World Champions or the World Series and it's the World Champions, well, it's just U.S. teams. It's not international teams that are coming, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's hard to say it's a real world championship. And a lot of tournaments in the U.S. would say it was a world championship, but they didn't have international teams coming or anything or, or representative. So they had you know, them each country represented. Well, back then there was only four weight classes. So Mike Anderson had Professional Karate Magazine. In those ratings at that time, 
he took the number one lightweight, the number one middleweight, the number one light heavy, and the number one heavyweight, according to his rankings in the magazine. And those had been going on. And, and you know, Black Belt Magazine had their ratings, which were pretty much right along the same, except Black Belt Magazine didn't have it according to weights back then. They had it just the top 10. Mm -hmm. So now he had four weight classes, not five, but just four. So Howard Jackson represented the super light um, and uh, lightweight, I mean, and uh, no, super light. And then lightweight was, uh, no, I'm sorry, super lightweight was added later. There was only lightweight, middleweight, light, heavy, and heavy. So Howard was light, Bill was middle, I was light, heavy, and Joe Lewis was the heavyweight. And uh, now Howard, uh, you know, Howard had been been winning a lot of the tournaments. At four tournaments in a row, you know, the the Ocean City a grant, you know, a pro-am that Bob Maxwell put on. I had beaten Howard for grand champion there. Right after that, two weeks later, I fought him for grand champion at the Battle of Atlanta. He beat me there in an overtime. We, both of them, we were going back and forth. The next year, same thing. I beat him in Ocean City. He beat me in Atlanta. And uh, so we had, you know, the best in the U.S. at the time to represent. Canada had Wally Smokey and Daniel Richet. And, I mean, they had some good point fighters back then. Daniel Richet and Smokey were, you know, winning a lot of stuff. And, and you probably know Daniel Richet and, and that group from uh, – from Lee uh, Taekwondo up in Canada with the gray uniforms that would always come down to Henry Cho's and all the New York tournaments. And uh, so it ended up, Howard really should have won the lightweight uh, division, but three weeks, maybe a month before there was a tournament in Denver and he was fighting and uh, somebody had uh, put, in a, put a cup, a Coke cup, you know, Heather, the ones that have the kind of waxy, they, they had it on the floor and he stepped back on it and he tore his ACL. And he had a brace on his leg for three weeks and took it off just to fight in the tournament. So he was really hobbled. And we got we got friendly, me and Howard, probably the last 10 years that he was alive, we'll say. And uh, he turned out to be a hell of a guy. What a what a nice person. Really good guy. We would hang out all night together the night before and uh, and party, but neither one of us drank or smoke, and all the other guys like to drink and stuff, and, and they'd be getting drunk, and we'd be acting like we're drinking. We're just drinking Coke, right? <laughs> and they would all be hung over, and we're all coming in fresh the next day. Exactly. Yep, yep. But uh, so he was the only one of us that lost the uh, the event, but uh, – the guy who uh, who beat him was actually one of June Reed black belts from Dominican Republic. His name was Ramon Smith. And then he fought uh, David Moon's guy uh, from Mexico, Isaias Duenas. And uh, Isaias was actually a middleweight. He was normally 180 pounds and he got had to get down under 150 to fight in that uh, that division. And Ramon Smith was really a super lightweight. He was like 135 or 140 pounds and uh, quick, real quick. I mean, he was like a, a thinner, even thinner than Howard Jackson, you know, that kind of speed, but not the power of Howard. And uh, and so Isaiah beat him in the final. So that's how it came out. 
you know, Mexico and then three US. And then the next uh, three or four months after that, uh, Mike Anderson decided they were going to establish a super lightweight division because there was a lot too many people that were a lot lighter than that under 150, you know. So he added that one and he put uh, the two highest rank at the time were from Mexico, Ramon, uh, no, not Ramon Smith, uh, Romero Guzman and uh, Gordon Franks. And they fought, Bruckner uh, did the did the world championship bout in uh, Berlin. And, uh, and then Gordon Franks won that match. And then he became the first super lightweight world champion. So then after that first four months, now there was five original world champions after that. And that's how that whole that whole thing came about. And uh, then the next milestone I would say would be uh, when I got to fight in Hawaii. And Hawaii was was really fun for me because it was the first time that they had a no rules tournament. And this wasn't the uh, the, the Frank Ducks uh, version. This was uh, no you know you could use knees, elbows. You could do kicks, punches, uh, pins, takedowns, throws, hold, joint locking, every style, judo, jujitsu, aikido, uh, kung fu, uh, you know, kempo, all the Muay Thai, all the way down the line, leg kicking, throws, everything. And it was in a boxing ring. Amazing that Frank made it out with no injuries on the <laughs> Well, I saw a video with an eye patch. I don't know what that was about. So. Uh, that's well, another story. You, the know. guy who had the tournament, his name was uh, Tommy Lee. Now, there is a Tommy Jeff, Lee. Jeff, can I ask you a question? That, that yeah. tournament, would you consider that like one of the first like mixed martial arts? It event? was the first. It, it was, it the, was first. the first. Except I can't even have credit for being in the first one. Because the same promoter did one three or four months before that. Okay. okay. That was the first one. But that first one, he didn't really know what he was doing. Didn't have as many people there. Yeah. And But he had a good turnout, right? But he wanted to do it no weight classes. Mm. Well, guess who fought for the grand champion? Benny the Jet. Benny, uh. really? And Benny was fighting one of his fighters. And that's why he said no weight classes because the promoter's fighter was a heavyweight, Dana Goodson, who was about 250, 240. And so Dana's fighting Benny for the grand champion. <laughs> and Benny beats him. Oh, yeah. Benny beats him. They, they underestimated him, right? And so now the next one, three months later, he says, okay, we're going to have weight classes next time. So that way, he, he Dana wouldn't have to fight Benny. Mm -hmm. Well, for whatever reason, Benny didn't come, but he invited me and Bill Wallace and Joe Lewis. And uh, Bill was already committed doing a seminar, or maybe a fight or something. So he didn't go. But Joe and I went. You know, we trained together before uh, I went out to California and hung out with him for a month before we went to Hawaii. And then we got to stay there two weeks. You know, I mean, I didn't care about it. I said, I get to go to Hawaii. I, and they paid all our expenses and paid the bet, you know, the best money we had ever gotten. They were paying 5,000 back then for the winners. And you know what the tournaments were doing back then? Most of them were a thousand dollars except for the world championships. Right. And, uh, but 
you know, the, the promoter was pretty smart. He said, just for the safety, because, you know, they didn't know if people were going to get killed or what, right? They said, if you're going to punch, you had to wear boxing gloves. If you were going to use your elbow, you had to wear an elbow pad. If you were going to use your knee, you had to put a knee pad. And if you were going to kick, you had to wear the safety kicks. So now that made it, and no eye gouging, biting, you know, those little simple things. Uh, you had to wear a cup and a mouth guard. So now, even though there was no rules, there were rules, right? But uh, I, Bill, Joe and I got seated into the quarterfinals. And uh, so we came in and, and won our matches. And both of us were fighting for the championship. He was fighting against uh, Teddy Lemos who was a, a heavyweight boxer, world rank in the top 10 in heavyweights by the WBC or WBA, whichever one was the big one back then. Uh, big, stocky, uh, not tall, you know, Hawaiian. You know how they they look like this, like they're from Samoa, and uh, but real powerful. And Joe was beating him in the first round. Well, I thought won the first round hands down. Come out the second round and Teddy headbutts him. Well, opened a big gash over his head. Well, I was going like, hey, well, if you're boxing, you're not supposed to headbutt. But I guess this was a no rule. So nobody said we couldn't headbutt. I'm, I didn't think about doing it myself. If I know it was legal, I would. But they didn't disqualify him. But Joe couldn't continue because the doctor wouldn't let him. Joe wanted to fight anyway. But it was over, directly over the top. So the blood was coming down in his eyes. So they they called it and they awarded it to Teddy. And then I fought uh, one of the uh, the guys from Hawaii in the finals. Uh, if I can even remember his name, I actually post, post Augie Evans was his name, and he had actually uh, fought in the one before and lost to Dana in the semifinals last time. And he was a light heavyweight. You know, he's my weight, but he was ripped. I mean, he was the fight. You want to see it? I posted it on Facebook. And when you see the fight, you go like, oh, okay, this is real fighting. It was no moving around and pacing because it was a three-round fight, three rounds, and it's elimination tournament. So you'd fight three rounds. If you won, you kept going. You fight three rounds. You keep going. And uh, – so there was no pacing or holding back. You had to go. So it was pretty wild. I knocked him down three or four times. Finally, he didn't get back up. But uh, I, I posted the fight. You can see it. Yeah, and then the next thing after that, and I, the only reason I consider that a milestone is just because I kind of considered it the the error of the first MMA-style fighting. And, you, you know, guys were throwing – and guys were kicking legs and they were joint locking, but nobody knew how to do it worth a damn anyway. And uh, you remember that tournament because I remember it was a big it was a big deal throughout yeah. the country. I do and remember he ran, it, he ran it for I don't know four or five times after that, I think. Uh,
say anything like that because this was 1975. So I don't know what Dukes's dates that he's talking about, but it was three, it years, was, he was, he was three years old then. So. Yeah. So this was 75. If he says anything after that, because really up to that time in 75, nobody had done that MMA style of fighting. Yeah. None of this all style. We've done full contact even at uh, uh, Ocean City in 73, uh, Bob Maxwell, because the Bondo guys, Dr. G, uh, who yeah, was yeah. the center referee in, in my fights when I was fighting Howard, uh, they had a uh, kickboxing exhibition or actual match. They had John Dutcher or Jack Dutcher, one of June Rees black belts, who was an ex-Marine, about 250, about 6'5", real big, tough, burly guy. And he was fighting against Harvey Hastings. Mm. And that was one of Dr. G's black belts and good friends of uh, uh, Bob Maxwell. And it became a good friend of mine, too. Uh, I would go to Dr. G's uh, summer camps and teach at his camp. And Harvey and I became real good friends. And Joe, I, Joe and I would go down to Florida and... Uh, uh, and train with him doing kickboxing stuff, but really, really good guy. He passed away a few years ago, but, uh, you know, that, that back then, uh, after, after that MMA type of fight, I just liked it because it was, and I had my first match. I had the guy in the corner and I was throwing hooks and uppercuts and he was trying to cover up. And I said, what the hell am I doing? I can use my elbows. So I just started doing, instead of hooks and uppercuts, I was just throwing elbow after elbow. And then he just slowly sank down in the corner and it was it. And I said, hey, these elbow things work pretty good. Yeah. So he, he brought his hands up and then I kneed him down here and then he brought them back down, you know, but that was before we really knew what the hell we were doing. You know, we were nowhere near the quality of the UFC type of guys doing yeah. that type of, even trying to call that MMA. The only thing that would be MMA about it is that the rules did allow all styles. So it was a mixed martial arts Definitely. and you use kicks and elbows, throws and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So it is a, was a real legitimate uh, and it was to the knockout. It wasn't any kind of point anything. Uh, and it was three rounds, so it wasn't just like a one-round deal. Mm -hmm. So it was it was pretty – and Benny won the first one. So that's what gave me the credibility of even going to it. Had somebody been in it I didn't even know, I would I would think they're full of shit. But it, I said, well, if Benny was in it competing and, and he won, then I'm I'm good with going. See, was Joe Coley just, one of the announcers there? No. Oh, no, okay. Joe wasn't there for that. I, I was he just going to say, I was just going to say, Jeff, I was joking around with the other thing, but history, history is what we preserve here. And I, and I enjoy the fact that you're sharing this because a lot of people don't know this stuff and through you, they can experience it. Well, Jeff, and, well, Jeff I have to say you did pass your senior citizen memory test because I wouldn't remember all those things. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you. You know, people people say, how do you remember all this shit? You did a full cut. You, I, I was 30, 30 wins and one loss, 17 knockouts. I said, look, I don't care about my record, but I'm going to tell you, I held the world title for seven years. But the thing that I'm most proud of is that I was never knocked down or out. Really? And 
Very few fighters can say that. They've at least right. been knocked down or knocked out, but maybe came back and won it or something. But I was never knocked down or out. So I always say, you know, the, the guys would say, yeah, you got you to gotta take two to give one. And I said, no, 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 no. My philosophy is I take none to give two. <laughs> so I worked a lot on defensive footwork because I didn't like getting hit. You know, some guys say, oh, you got to like getting hit if you do full contact. I said, no, no. You just means if you don't like getting hit, you got to work more on your defense. That's right. Yeah. If That's you right. like hitting, you work more on your offense. Well, I liked hitting, so I'd do that, but I didn't like getting hit, so I work on my defense. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, there was a couple other memorable times for me in the point days. You know, my first black belt tournament was in 1969. I'm fighting in the finals, and I was just, you know, that, that was Skipper Mullins, Fred Wren, and Ed Daniels, and Jim Buton, and all these guys uh, that were, you know, that I had seen coming up. And I'm fighting Ed Daniels uh, in the semifinals. Well, Ed is, you know, six, seven, 300 pounds. I'm a senior in high school. No, I just got out of high school. I was a freshman in college. I was 150 pounds. So he basically was twice my size. So I'm trying to figure, and I watched his other matches and his leg is so long that he would kick people right on the hip. And once that would stop you coming in, then he would reach out and grab you with the other arm and then pound you to death, right? The old Texan, grab him and, and, and pound him. And so I said, okay, I'm not gonna let him grab my arm, right? So I tried to go in and sidekick him and he kicked into my leg and then he tried to grab me and I got the hell out of the way. So the next time I think like I was going in and he put his sidekick up and I did a jump reverse sidekick and hit him square in the nose. Jim Harrison was the center referee. And when I hit him and I tell you to this day, I've done five boards with the sidekick or reverse sidekick. I don't ever feel anything on my foot hitting harder than I did on his nose. I, I could feel the cartilage crunching, right? When I hit him, he did like a tree and fell. And the whole gym, every ring stopped because it shook the whole gym. That was 300 pounds coming down. Well, his nose was on the side of his face. It wasn't, you know, how sometimes you get a broken nose. No, this was that detached one over here. Okay, here's Pat Burleson and Jim Harrison. They come over, no sympathy. They take two pencils, stick them up his nose, straighten it back up. Now his nose won't stop bleeding. So now they get balls of cotton, stuff it up, tape it, tape it here. Now, Black Belt Magazine has a picture of him with the tape and everything, and we're fighting, right? Huh. And uh, and I'm going like, oh, I should be disqualified. If anybody should be disqualified, that's disqualification, right? Huh. But Jim was the center referee, and so he didn't disqualify me. He just gave me a penalty point, right? Okay. And I'm going, oh, no, Mr. Harrison, really, I should be disqualified. I I didn't want to get back in there with him. Hi, Jeff, we, we got about 10 minutes. So I want to hear okay. about the thrill in Manila. Let's get to the Ali. The Ali. Okay. So 
this, you know, the, the thrill in Manila, the good thing about that is that it was the exposure. 50 million people watching that thing live. No, no martial arts, even the others all up to that time put together. You know, that's a lot of viewers live uh, for a martial arts event. You know, obviously it still holds the record, but I wasn't even supposed to be fighting. It was supposed to be Joe Lewis. And the reason I got in there is because of Joe Lewis. They were going to use Ross Scott. And Ross Scott was 19 years old, a farm boy. He didn't, you know, he wasn't articulate. Well, they were doing all kinds of publicity for this. They flew me to Chicago. They flew me to New York. We had all these TV, you know, all kinds of TV stations doing all this. I was right there with Ali and, and Foreman and uh, and. It, it's it's crazy the the theatrics that was going on. They had a big party at Elijah Muhammad's house in Chicago, and you know back then there were racial tensions, you know, still. And uh, June Ree and I were the only white people at the party, except for a few of the movie stars. But they treated us like royalty. I mean, they were very respectful and nice. And Kareem always gave me respect. But you know how he liked to talk trash, right? And he would ha he had that rap just like Ali, and it was great for the for the cameras, right? And he's going to beat you. And I got you know I got uh, the eighth wonder of the world. I got forty two styles, and he had all this rap, right? And a great look. I mean, he was very uh, he was like a like a, a Muhammad Ali, just a little smaller version, right? But you know, very neat hair you know, dressed very neat, you know, with uh, the Muslim, uh, you know, tie and suit. They weren't the ghetto. These were real class uh, uh, people. And, uh, you know, we had the press conference with Roberto Duran there because he fought on the card. And we're all there. I have a picture with Roberto and Don King and Ali and, and uh, Kareem. We're all right there in, at one of the press conferences. So a great, uh, you know, a great opportunity. We had press conference in Washington, D.C. So uh, because Joe was supposed to fight, he was fighting Ross Scott six weeks before. And he thought because Ross was just a new, you know, up and coming 19 year old, one of Glenn Keeney's and Parker Shelton's uh, black belts, they thought it was going to be an easy match for him. And it probably would have been for him then because Joe was in top shape then. But Joe dislocated his shoulder in the second or third round on his front hand. And, uh, you know, that was kind of his setup for his right hand. And uh, after that, Ross just kept pounding him and uh, ended up, you know, he had sore ribs and his shoulder was dislocated. And so he was pretty, uh, pretty worked over enough that there was no way possible that he could fight in that fight. And when they said, uh, well, should we do Ross Scott? And he said, no. Ross Scott has no reputation. If you put him in there, there's not, you know, nobody's going to even say who is Ross Scott. He said, do Jeff Smith. He's the first world light heavyweight champion. And in boxing, they do heavyweight against light heavyweight quite frequently. Usually the heavyweight wins, but they do do it quite frequently over history. Right. And so uh, they put me in there and uh, we actually did it live here in Washington, D.C. at the, uh, the, the biggest sports arena here, which back then seated about 35,000. And uh, that was the closed circuit show for 
the thrill in Manila, and then it shot via, they were showing that fight, then they had shoot it back for the rest of the world at the same time. My brother was in California and saw it, and everybody else in all different parts of the country and the world were seeing it broadcast like that. So it was a capacity sold out crowd here at, at the Capitol Center, which is the biggest sports arena back then. And, uh, and you know, it, I knew going into it that, uh, you know, I'm fighting Don's fighter, right? Don King is, is his uh, promoter. He's the promoter, but he's also the manager of Kareem. And uh, he even set up a whole office in Rockefeller Plaza for, you know, that was their, their Don King's offices there. And he set up a whole office there for Kareem and his fighters. I mean, his uh, handlers and trainers. So he was getting, he was getting Ali treatment. You know what I mean? And uh, so I, you know, Joe Corley was in my corner, Asa Gordon, Jerry Rome. Th this was my corner. Jerry Rome was my training partner because I felt he was the closest to Kareem, you know? And I said, if I can hang with Jerry Rome, Kareem will be easy because Jerry was just as big and Jerry was knocking everybody out back then, including Ross Scott. And uh, so I went in there and I knew that, you know, I was in my mind, I was thinking if I don't knock him out, I'm going to lose. But I dominated the rounds enough, even though I didn't knock him out, he got a two standing eight counts. He went to the wrong corner. He stumbled to the wrong corner at the end of one round, and he never hit me or hurt me in the whole fight, but I dazed him and hit him quite a bit. And I, I had the whole fight. If you don't have it, I'll I'll forward it to you, Alan. And uh, and you can look at it for yourself and, uh, and see what you think. Because when I look at a fight, I, I it's hard to be objectionable, ob objective, objective very objective when you're in it right mm -hmm. yeah so i always tell everybody look at it yourself make your own decision you know mm -hmm. it, the fight is what it is so look at it the the camera doesn't lie so if you think he wins or i think well obviously if i beat him with his judges then i had to at least have beat him right kareem was upset about it and thought he should have won or whatever but when you see the fight you know you yeah. you'll, you'll see what i'm talking about but, you know, Jeff, something, we got a few more minutes, and you're known as one of the greatest fighters that, that's coming along in many, many centuries, okay? Um, but you are a basic, as you said, you taught for Junri, you did all his schools and classes, but you right now you're very successful. You're involved with William Oliver and what you do, and I give you guys credit because you built a family within your group. I, I have a little pet peeve that I don't, these, a lot of these gurus, quote unquote, martial art gurus, are more just teaching how to have a babysitter. Or, again, like I said once, how many times can you put a balloon on the wall and teach somebody how to do it? And really, it's, it's bull crap. And then you're paying $1,300 to learn how to put balloons on the wall. Uh, I, a quick yeah, story I'll say. I, 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 I was at an event once, and, and there's some guy, and I'm not going to mention names, I really like the guy, but he had a magazine. And he had his whole article in there, and it was about this, that, and the other thing. But they never mentioned what the guy studied, what he did. All they talked about was his school. So I looked at him. I said, well, what martial arts did he? He goes, well, I don't know. I says, well, you know, it's a martial art magazine. No, 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 it's a business magazine. I just know on top, in big letters, it said martial arts, and then little letters. Business. 
It's a magazine for martial arts first. And you get and the guy I, I love the guy. The guy changed the, the attitude of the magazine after that because he knew I was right. And I gave him credit for what he did. But a lot of these gurus, I mean, you know, after you're paying a guy $1,300 a month for nothing, okay, and then you're sending in, and these guys are doing nothing with their knowledge after a certain amount of time, I got to look at it. But you guys have built a family of what you do. We talked about a lot about what you do. We're not going to mention the name, but online uh, teaching and stuff like that. But go give us a little background before we get to close up yeah. about it. It's, it's, it's an in, it's interesting thing because, you know, Steve Oliver is, uh, you know, was one of my black belts, but, you know, June Reed black belt and, and went to Georgetown University and taught for us while he was going to Georgetown University, got his, uh, his uh, bachelor's degree, went on, got his master's degree. But the guy, it was so smart at 22 years old. Now, you had to realize 22 years old, it's hard enough to run at one school by yourself, right? Without having a lot of help. He moves to Denver, opens five schools in 18 months at 22 with no loans, with no help from his parents on credit cards on the first one and got enough cash from that one to open the next one to open the next one and did 22. You know, in the year 2000 or 2001, early 2000s, he wrote the first book on internet marketing for martial arts schools. Well, most people didn't even know what inter internet marketing was maybe until a few years, five years ago or so. You know, this was back in early 2000, right? So, you know, he is so bright and, and a good technician, but you know, we had been in contact the whole time. You know, I would go out and do seminars and train and go to his tournament. He had a big NASCAR tournament on the circuit and did all that. So we decided that uh, we we want to help martial arts schools. And if we're going to help our industry grow, we've got to start educating all of these fighters because most of them only thought about fighting and nothing about what happens after you fight. And you got to have a martial arts business or you're going to be doing a nine to five because the martial artists were not making enough money like football players or basketball or baseball where they had any money left. Right. So they had to, we had to do something for our industry. That was our main purpose. You know, there were so many of the top martial artists that were such good fighters or forms or or or, or martial arts instructors. They taught such good students in classes but their school struggled and it had nothing to do with how good their martial arts were because down the street, Joe Blow wasn't worth a shit and he was making 10 times what this great martial artist was doing. So we said, we've got to make sure that we get these top martial artists and start teaching them how to run their schools. So now the people that do stay and thrive are going to be the ones that really know martial arts and not a bunch of these guys that got their black belt and then went and opened a school somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's how we started the whole thing. And, uh, you know, my expertise in it, in it, I know how to run the whole business, but I was giving, you know, he was going to do all the marketing stuff and teaching them that part. And I was going to kind of do the classroom stuff, you know, because my expertise and my accomplishments, I developed a lot of national and world champions. So I had the quality in the instruction because we didn't want to just teach the business without teaching classroom quality. So we wanted to teach them how to develop good black belts. Well, our, our association, our group, our 
uh, martial art. It's called martial arts wealth mastery. So they're learning how to master the wealth business part of martial arts. Uh, so what we told them is that we're going to teach them how to be a black belt in martial arts business. And it takes about four years, no different than getting a black belt. How did you get your black belt? You didn't get it by going to a seminar. You didn't get it by reading a book and looking at a video. You went to class on a weekly basis and you had an instructor and you had classmates and you learned from your classmates and your instructor corrected you. So Steve and I got together and we said, why don't we teach the business the same way? So we started Zoom meetings five years ago. And even before Zoom, we were not Zoom, but internet <laughs> live video because that other, the Z place wasn't even around. And there was other people. Now we have the V doing. place. We have the V place. Well, that's why the V came and, and survived through the pandemic and taught people <laughs> how to do it properly. There you go. <laughs> I love so that. we were doing these <laughs> online training with them. So every week we could, and we did these groups just like we did the school. We had a beginner group. We had an intermediate group. We had an advanced group. And then we had a black belt group. So that way we could train them what they need to know at this level of their business, this level, this level. Well, once we started doing this, now all of a sudden, school, all of a sudden schools are double, triple, quadrupling their gross. During the pandemic last year, we had schools, multiple schools that were doing over 100,000 a month mm. on single operating schools, 3,000 square feet. I'm not talking about a 10 or 20,000 place yeah, yeah. because we teach them how to do that. And when they learn how to do those things, now they want to stay with us. It's like a the instructor who has a student that stays with them for a long time mm -hmm. because that instructor has given them something that has helped something them. Something to stay for, right. And, and so if we didn't do this, if we didn't have this, we have about 100 members now, 100 schools. If we weren't around with them during the pandemic, they would have been like the rest of the in industry. You know, Steve keeps a pretty good tab on the industry and our estimate was 50% of the martial arts schools in this country went out of business last year. Oh, 100%. And of those remaining 50%, at least half of those were at least 50% down. down. The ones in our group had record year. Most of them were did better in 20 than they even did in 19. And the reason is because we teach them everything about running a school from A to Z. You're, you know what most school operators to give them the, the tools oh. to actually build. You know, it's like they, if you build a house with with uh, with a pencil, it's not going to work. You need all the tools good, to make it work. Good analogy. Yeah. And and the problem that most school owners, you know, what they come to you and ask, they say, "Well, just tell me how to get students because if I get them in here, then I'm going to be successful." That's, That's not bullshit. all. No, they're not because good business. They, they don't know how to keep those students. Yep. They don't know how to control. The biggest problem in this country with, with schools, there's only two problems. One is getting new students, and two is keeping them. Keeping them. Yep. So we've got to we've got to get them to buy in to emotionally the students in your school that the purpose of coming to your school is to be a black belt. 
right. not to be a white belt, not to do it for a year, but stay with it. Mm -hmm. You need to be a black belt. Just like going to college, you got to go four years to get a degree. Right. Jeff, um, something, you know, like if you even see what I do and my students too, you've been to my event, you see the guys that work my event. I've got the same guys for 20, 30 years. Okay. Cause of the loyalty that was built in it. And I, me, I couldn't do what I do without them at that point. Oh, uh, you know, so it, it's one of those things. And you know, we try to, and I mean, you know, you've been in business, you've done everything. We try to make our event look seamless without any problems, <laughs> which there are a lot that people don't your, see. Your event is, is the perfect example for anybody. You know, one of the things that we do with our members is we teach them, you know, they've got to learn how to uh, duplicate what these other schools are doing. And they yeah. do it by watching what they do and they copy it. And by that duplication, if somebody wants to know how to run one of the, the events like you, if they aren't doing what you're doing, because everything you've done, you know how you know you're successful? It's not that you got a thousand people there. It's that every year there's more people coming. And that's what we tell the karate schools. You never flatline. You're yeah. either green and growing or you're ripe and rotting. You always so have that inflection point. You have that inflection point, Jeff, where either you're going to go up or you're going to go down. And it's a choice well, of theirs and what they, you know, where that's, it goes. That's the key. Yeah. Now, I, I, I always look at every year I do something, I always say I try to add something on because I don't ever want it to be boring, you know, and keep keep up. And that's what you guys are basically doing, keeping the interest of all the, all the students and instructors, too. It's important and, also and, to be the instructors. And not only did we help our members during this pandemic, we were every we were doing two or three seminars a month since March of last year free online for people to come in and have an hour or two seminar on how to survive through the pandemic and what wow. they need to do all yeah. free, no charge. And then we sent them materials and say the 10 things you have to do. Mm -hmm. uh, he put together a martial arts stimulus package. And if you go to martialartstimulus.com, just like it's spelled, yeah. like it sounds, you'll get $3,000 worth of free material on wow. how to, how to ramp up after the pandemic, how to how to do all of these systems. And yeah. it'll give you such an insight into, and a, and a lot of people will look at it and be able to apply it. Other right. people look at it and they go, I don't know what the hell that is. You know, it just depends on what their business level is of knowledge, but it's available free for them that I guarantee you, if they apply just a few of those things, their gross or active counter enrollment or marketing or retention. It's whatever, whatever you need more help on will be there to show you how to do it. And that's all uh, free, Jeff. Say it yeah. again. That's all free. Free. No charge, no obligation. Okay. We don't say, okay, you're going to have to sign up with us before we'll give it to you. No, you go to martialartstimulus.com. It's going to be there printed up. Uh, we, there's even a, a contact number, Bob Dunn, who works for us, will answer your questions and show you how to answer. You know, mm -hmm. Some people look at it and they go, what does that mean? And they'll call him and he'll tell them. You know, we're not trying to hide anything. We're trying to revive the industry because what we decided we back in March is <laughs> if, if schools all go out of business, it's going to hurt us, not help us. Yep. We yeah. need 
we need friendly competition to, to yeah. grow the industry. Well, Jeff, we're, we're just about ready to close up. I, I want to thank you. You've been a wonderful guest. And you make it easy to have gone because you, you've got all your, your mindset and what you want to say ahead of time. So it's great. A lot of people don't do that. They get on and they fun for So we didn't even need to bring any of our other co-hosts. No, we didn't need it. We didn't need. We didn't need anybody. We didn't need Wikipedia today at all. I tell you, and Steve always gets up to me and says, "Damn, you talk too much." <laughs> no, no, it's not I a matter. I'm trying to tell what it's about. Exactly. And that's right. important. Well, I just want to thank, uh, you know, Vera High for having us, working with us and Lou. Uh, we're always honored to, you know, get shows like this and put some information out there for people. We have uh, Don Warner Entertainment, Shalom Brand, Amen on the channel. They'll be on hopefully next week. We have the 24-hour day martial art channel going up. So we got a lot of great things coming out. And I just say, because I know you watch this, Frank Dukes, please come on the show. We'll have a good time. We won't beat you up too much, but we're going to ask you some questions you may have. But he has fans. I mean, he has his own fans. There's a whole group. It's just like uh, people in uh, movies who never did real martial arts, uh, yeah. but there yeah, are a exactly. martial artist for the movies, and they look yeah. good. And yeah. nobody can ever argue with them if they say what they say. Well, I know he's good. I just saw him wipe out 30 people. And, and they don't realize <laughs> that sometimes what you see on a movie – yeah. Guess what? Those people yeah. aren't really getting shot. We don't, no, want, to, really. we don't want to spoil these movies for them, but those people aren't really dead. Yeah. <laughs> well, my friend, thank you. It's always an honor to speak to you. And if you get that stuff, you want to send that to me. And I also Mike Anderson's information. I'd love to give him a okay. call. Say hello to him. Hey, thanks again, folks. Thanks and for I'll listening and watching you. the show. I'll send you the uh, uh, that uh, Holly Fraser fight, yeah. and then I'll also yeah. send you the Hawaiian thing. Good. Excellent. And then Jeff, Mike Edison's number. Excellent. Jeff, thanks a lot. Lou, thanks a lot. Till next time. God bless everybody.